Hi, it's Martin here, electronically yours as always. Today is a bonus episode, in addition to the normal episodes. And it's essentially a guy called Mark Rowland from Electronic Sound Magazine who've done an amazing special based on our early BEF work, particularly music for stowaways. And it's on sale at the newsstands at the moment. It comes with a free single of a couple of brand new tracks that no one's heard before. So uh, go out and buy that. It's really worth it. I'm not on commission, by the way, but I, I just think I'm very proud of it. I'm on the cover as well, me and Ian, with a photo from back in the day when I had hair. So this is Mark Rowland interviewing me about that period and some other general kind of production stuff. I'm sure you'll find interesting. Here it is. <laughs> I was in the office till about midnight last night and I sat and uh, flicked through the latest issue of Electronic Sound with uh, BEF on the cover. That extraordinary photo of, uh, of you guys, which I think is another piece of that um, sort of corporate satire yeah, that, you, right. uh, that you were sort of doing so, so well. You, you're so sharply dressed. It looks very yeah. cool with you. A little cheroot on as well. Um, <laughs> I love that, but I also I will come back to that in a sec. But I, I, I was listening to the single as well. I put it on the turntable, uh, and I was on my own, and it was uh, yeah. I turned my back on the stereo, and was just sort of on our meeting desk, and there was something about the sound of of it coming from behind. Weirdly, I don't know whether that was a sort well, of that's perception. Because, let me explain. So, fine, uh-huh. uh, you know, we these were originally three D sound. Uh, sound field record. Uh, I mean, sound com- compositions using our system, three D audio. Scale. I should probably um, just clear up that this is a single that comes with Electronic yeah. Sound magazine. Yeah, yeah. With that's right. If you, yeah. So, um, if, for listeners, if anybody wants to. So, and the thing is, <clears throat> normally, when we render these things, it's for an installation or an outdoor event or whatever, and and. It's obvious it's 3D sounds, things are coming from everywhere. But we can also render it as binaural for headphones. If you play that through a couple of speakers on a laptop or or a normal hi-fi system, if you are at the apex of an equilateral triangle, if your head is there between the speakers or near there, you will get the same effect of things appearing to come from behind you and all over the place. So uh, that's a little tip for the listeners if you want to try that one out. Um, it does. I mean, the speakers would have to be near ear level for it to work properly. Um, okay. So. Yeah. Ah. Okay. Because I leant down. Our table is at the same level as the speakers, and I there literally leant down like that to sort of flick through the magazine, and and it it was a peculiar sensation. Yeah. Yeah. It sort yeah. of felt like it was. I don't know. I don't quite know how to describe it. Yeah, you know yeah. when you know when um, you know when um, various technology companies like Bose or whatever they they sell you TV sound bars, and they do their advertising. Yeah. And they have these things with arrows coming out, going surround yourself with, you know, and it's <laughs> it's a bit it's a bit like that, but not ours is much better. You can if you're at the right place. It does. Mm. It does work, even if it's coming from two speakers on one side. Yeah. Talk me through the tracks again. Um, unknowable on the A side, and I am an insect. Right. 
um, they're, they're very, uh, they're quite different from one another, different sort of approaches to um, Yeah. Well, to I'm, a, I'm an insect. Was composed, um, well, co-composed between myself and my son, Gabriel Ware, who's the head composer of Illustrious. <laughs> and um, the idea, he's very keen on... Um, orchestral compositions using you know top quality samples i'm lucky to be sponsored by spitfire who uh, like one of the world's top companies they they're actually based in the same uh, area as me at, at tile yard in london and um they have um <clears throat> excuse me they have given us huge amounts of uh, orchestral the best you know top quality like hollywood quality and uh but of course you need to know how to use them and need to understand what the how they work and and gabriel has taught himself how to read and write music and how to compose essentially and uh, so um i set him the challenge to create a composition based around this amazing ancient woodland uh, glade uh, in Bath, which is part of Forest of Imagination, um, and uh, which is a which is a festival that's on every year, which we I do a lot of three D sound for, and different installations. So um, the idea was <coughs> to create a kind of film soundtrack, so people going through it could wander through and feel like they're in a film. It's always been a bit of a thing of mine you know uh, this kind of personal soundtrack thing and this is an opportunity to make it sound real because we had speakers concealed in the trees at different levels and what have you and um so i we he came up with this amazing composition and the other interesting thing about it was the idea i had is to create uh a situation where uh kids could wear this these helmets we designed this normal kind of plastic helmets but we attached uh sounds of different insects on top and had you know grasshopper or you know whatever it is you know caterpillar and so they could actually be the insects wandering around this three-dimensional sound scene and they loved it there are various videos <laughs> online of it um oh really oh yeah 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 um if so if you type in i am an insect and um, forest of imagination and uh, yeah it's big success everybody loved it but i thought a lot of the compositions that we do for illustrious uh are only ever heard once or you know for a mm. weekend or <laughs> maybe a couple of weeks stretch and uh all the above and um so i thought it deserves a wider audience it's a beautiful piece of music um, yeah. The the other track, uh, what's it called again? Unknowable. <laughs> Unknowable. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I, I change the titles all the time. So, <laughs> no, it wasn't originally called Unknowable. That's why I'm saying that. Oh, okay. Um, right. Uh, it was designed for a uh, uh, a chain of diamond shops called hearts on fire in america and the shops themselves were um 
were uh, designed to be very minimalistic, kind of futuristic, all white, with illuminated vitrines and just, you know, like something out of a 1970s science fiction film, you know, perfect. Amazing. And yeah. you walk in there, <laughs> and they, the, our, child, our uh, brief was to create something that was, it felt like you were uh, entering the future that mm. would kind of engage you in a hypnotic, semi-hypnotic way, keep you in the shop, make you buy more shit that you don't need. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and it worked, you know, basically we designed this soundscape. We designed a series because obviously if you play the same soundscape all day, every day in these shops, it would drive the <clears throat> shop assistants insane. So, um, so we designed something that uh, I think it's four or five different versions that, that kind of mutate okay. throughout the day. So same themes, but different yeah. versions, right? And anyway, this is one of those. And this is my favorite one out of all of them. So in, on this particular uh, composition, you'll hear twinkling, which is kind of symbolic of the diamonds or metaphorically symbolic of the diamonds you hear like um size uh ah. women's size okay. uh, uh, it's uh, like a kind of implication that if you buy a lovely diamond that somehow is sexually alluring or you know um you went you went right to the heart of the matter oh, yeah i mean come on it's a, <laughs> it's not just romance yeah. it's 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 yeah, it's like a bonding thing, which includes sex and everything. So, um, and then, of course, from a compositional point of view, the kind of chord sequences and the arrangement has to be very. It's a different thing when you're composing for stuff that's going to be played at a low level. Mm. Uh, it's never going to be played at concert level, or you know, nobody's going to pump it up on their hi-fi. This is meant to be played. It's just a, a kind of, it's like a, a sonic scent, essentially. Mm, right. Yeah, That's yeah. the way to describe it. So you, yeah, and actually, um, Eno is a bit of an inspiration in, in this respect because he used to talk about, um, you know, I mean, I don't know if he invented ambient music, but he certainly, he certainly popularized it. Mm. Uh, and this idea of when he was in his hospital bed and like, he had something very, very quiet in the room, and he thought, "Oh, I get it." You know, it's not rock yeah. and roll, it's not pop, it's not. It's it's a totally different function, and that's what this is. So the both, idea of both of them are in binaural, so this should, you should get that immersive effect again if you place your head in between the speakers, roughly at an equilateral. Yeah. of the equilateral triangle you should get some effect like that definitely it, it, i think it, it, that piece is uh it's really seductive as well it just it's meant to be yeah 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 then knowing knowing that now i didn't know that information about it when uh, i first heard the, the track when you sent it through um but that makes you know, complete you, i can just imagine it yeah you know um one Really, uh, one uh, proper inspiration for that track was, uh, I mean, I'm a big fan of, uh, of uh, movie soundtracks, always have been. used to collect them. 
And uh, there's a film by Brian De Palma called Body Double. Do you know that? Oh, yeah, I love that film, yeah. It's a great yeah. film, isn't it? Yeah. And there's that fantastic Maybe. theme. I think it's by Pino Donaggio. Uh, okay. The main theme, which is like the... Na 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 na, and it's like these beautiful shifting chord sequences, and it's got the it's got a kind of pulsing, uh, a pulsing sequence going in the background, and it's like very gentle but seductive, and that was the kind of inspiration for that piece. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's um that sort of idea of environmental sound. Um, <laughs> Not just sort of music. That, this seems to me to be what BEF was sort of. Um, you were kind of exploring the, the idea with the music for Stowaways album that's just been re-released um, on that's Cold right. Spring. That's right. Um, which is a, 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 a it's a, such a great record that um, sort of got lost a bit, didn't it? I, I suppose in the eighties and the the success of Heaven Seventeen, uh, that that album became a kind of. Um, I don't know, like a, a secret side project that insiders knew about. So it's great yeah. to see it re-released. Well, the, um, uh, the, um, uh, I was amazed to find out that Moby, it was one of uh, Moby's biggest inspirational albums and he, he is one of his favourite tracks is Decline of the West. I mean, I don't just mean one of his favourite tracks on the album, I mean one of his favourite tracks of all time is what yeah. he told me anyway. And um, when I interviewed him and... Um, so I was amazed, you know, because right, he, he, I'm quite prepared because uh, I've interviewed a lot of people in the dance scene from the 90s who go, oh, you know, Hem 17 was one of our uh, inspirations for going down that path. But I, I, you don't expect that world of the of the dance fraternity and going around the world, getting paid loads of money and helicopters and all. You don't expect them to have taken the quieter tracks as inspiration as well you know so it's quite interesting yeah it is yeah and that album was a sort of um the idea behind it the, the whole packaging of it and, and it sort of spilled into the heaven 17 album as well and and this cover of electronic sound that that imagery of uh you were creating this sort of corporation vibe yeah. uh and it was right. a sort of art I wouldn't call it a prank, but it was definitely a sort of artful satire that you were using visually. But there was actually a serious uh, side to it as well, which was that that album was was intended as a as a showcase mm. for for your well, what you could do, what your production, uh, what you could create sound wise. Yeah, that that was uh, well the the kind of background to it for those who are interested is when we. Um, when we signed to Virgin as BEF, uh, the first thing that we wanted to do was nail our colours to the mast and say, we're not going to stop being experimental. But we are, there's going to be two strands to our career, basically. One is going to be, we're going to continue the experimental sidebar, which is what uh, Music for Stowaways was. But uh, we're also going to try and go more for the pop jugular by incorporating all the stuff we've learned through this kind of more esoteric stuff into the pop mainstream. And um I think I think we achieved it, you know. Uh, uh I think you did. To a certain extent. <laughs> and that's why, you know, people started coming to us um well BF initially and then Ian kind of 
moved away from BEF quite quite shortly afterwards. Um, right. Uh, they. That's why I say us. It's not the royal we. You know. Uh, <laughs> um, they came to us and then me to do um, things like well, our first outside production was Hot Gossip. You know. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, which and they did conversions of of early BF, early um, uh, humanly and and a couple of M seventeen stuff. And so everything was pointing towards doing a new kind of palette for for pop music, and mm. and in fact, music of quality and distinction, which we were doing at roughly the same time, was the other was the flip side of that coin. It was more songs that people were familiar with, but twisted through mm. this lens of electronic pop soul, whatever it is. Um, so yeah. Uh, uh, different facets of the same passions, really. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, your 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 own interest in music. Um, obviously, you 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 hit the synthesizer. That that was the the your instrument. That was the one that that uh, you could play <laughs> for mm, starters. That's right. But yeah. also, your interest uh, and your fandom of of soul music, I think, is is really important. Is um I've often wondered about Sheffield on that front. It, Sheffield in the seventies was an extraordinary place from from the outside with all of this activity that was going on from Cabaret Voltaire and and the the sort of early ABC uh, sort of stuff and, and you guys. It seemed like a hotbed of uh, experimentation and avant-garde art and all these different ideas feeding in and filmmaking and you had Human League stuff with the audio audio visuals. But at the same time, Sheffield, correct me if I'm wrong, always seemed to be a place where people went out on a Friday and Saturday night for a <laughs> dance. Yes. And... And the music that was being listened to for for that was probably going to be more black music and soul. Well, it was. That's how it went down. Yeah. So, uh, in the north of England, obviously, northern soul was a huge thing, particularly in the Mm. big cities. So, uh, you know, Manchester, Liverpool, Sheffield, even Leeds. You know, going up towards uh, York and Newcastle, and you know. You name it. I mean, in all the major urban centres, there was somewhere nearby, in down as far as Stoke, really, uh, you know, uh, there were, and Wigan, of course, Wigan Casino and all that, there was Northern Soul clubs. Now, that's the more that's the more kind of, if you like, geeky, nerdy end of the soul scene. But in the mainstream clubs, like there was one in Sheffield called Penelope's, which we used to go to, <clears throat> which was completely mainstream. I mean, I'd say 90% of its traffic was Friday and Saturday nights, you know. Uh, apart from the, they had student nights earlier in the week and all that, because there's a big student population in Sheffield, uh, which was a different kind of range of music. But Friday and Saturday nights, it was mainstream uh, pop, mu- pop music, but it was always the credible end of mainstream black popular music. And then... It wasn't just whatever was in the charts. It wasn't chart music necessarily. There was some. It was uh, in a rare groove. There was some very. There was some classic dance floor fillers. 
But it's like that tradition of not being ashamed to like popular music is a big thing mm. in 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 North in London. I mean, I've lived in London for forty years now. It, it, but even when I first moved down, people were too cool for school. You know, it's like oh no, yeah, that's for the townies that come into town at weekends. You know, we don't listen to that. We listen to stuff that no one's ever heard before. And it wasn't Northern Soul. It was more like Rare Groove, Underground Soul from, you know, like the Wag Club. I used to go to the Wag Club all the time. Right. And uh, in the 80s. So culturally, Britain's a very interesting place in, in uh, at that period. And actually, when we... So when we were growing up in Sheffield... It was the the sem, you know the early human league and before was all about trying different things out and and, and particularly obviously with um, synthesizer and stuff and we we're more interested in being weird you know and uh, <laughs> and being and you know taking a lot of influences from uh, Germanic groups. Um, yeah, and people like suicide. You know, uh, some American influences, obviously disco, but like it's like mutant disco, they used to call it, didn't they? Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> for a while. And uh, <laughs> so we were more interested in that stuff, but there was a whole range of different influences kicking off. And, um, but then when it got to the kind of, uh, you know, BF and the 80s, it was about the flow, is about the start of CDs coming out. The start of MTV, so mm-hmm. videos were becoming very important, um, and it seemed like a, a you know a brand new world was opening up uh, for commerciality, and mm-hmm. uh, that could be credible as well. So, from our taste point of view, as soon as we were out of the what I quickly realised was a bit of a straitjacket with the early Human League. We had such strict rules about what was permissible. Um, it all had to be completely electronic at all times. Uh, we weren't allowed to be anything other than kind of funky in an abstract way. Um, mm-hmm. We couldn't incorporate any real instruments, da 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 da, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Certain subjects we couldn't, or even words we couldn't incorporate oh really you had oh, a you had a list of prescribed words yeah yeah that's right <laughs> and so as soon as as soon as 717 yeah we started 717 we had a kind of stock take and thought you know what you know what are we actually consuming what 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 gives us joy in music and we got me and Glenn and Ian have always had eclectic taste in music, but really, we, this was the peak of our clubbing period. So we thought, you know, we need to we need to acknowledge a bit more of a a kind of um, our, you know, our kind of soul roots a bit more. So that's hence you end up with something like fascist groove thing and our politics as well, because we couldn't talk about politics with the Human League; just wasn't. The fit, right? You yes. could talk about it in a highly abstracted manner, but it wasn't yeah. really, and um, it just wasn't on the agenda. But this is like, right? If we're going to talk about politics, let's make it incredibly direct. Uh, <laughs> is what we did, and it always makes me laugh to this day when people say, 
you know, because we're in the Twitterverse now, aren't we? And it's like everybody's going, why don't you just, you know, leave the politics out of it and just focus on the music, Martin? And I'm going, because your music's great. And I'm going, um, have you heard of We Don't Do That Fascist Screw thing? I think you'll find that's what we are. It's not like some yeah. Asian. You know, we yeah. red wedge as well and all that stuff. And, the, and it's like, yeah, you know, it's a funny thing. But, you know, that kind of bolshiness of, of getting back to music for stowaways was really an attempt to kind of create a, you know, a kind of BF cinematic universe, which had mm. a balance of experimental and go for the jugular pop. And we were hoping about it. You know, sorry, we were hoping by accident that we might find the sweet spot in the middle, which we did occasionally. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is as well about it that seems to me is is all of that the, the construct of of what you were doing in that year, um post the the, the palace coup of the human leagues uh splitting. Um the creation of BEF, the creation of Heaven 17, that could have been, like the Human League, I suppose, was the first two albums, a, a sort of um, art school uh, left field project yeah. in itself. You, you could have had all of those ideas that it's going to be a pop album and, and all the rest of it. But then it worked and you had hits and then you did another album and there were some more hits, uh, possibly even bigger than the hits off the first album. Uh, Temptation was... Definitely. Uh, was was huge, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then that led to, I assume, anyway, uh, your own production work with um, some astonishingly massive albums of uh, of the eighties. So it seems to me that the uh, you really leapfrogged in the ambition stakes uh, into exactly what you sort of had had said you were going to do. Yeah, was there was there any point during that process where you thought, "Well, bloody hell, this is, you know, this is a long way from Meat Whistle in Sheffield." Uh, oh yeah, when you uh, uh, on an almost continuous basis, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, trying to, uh, I you know, it's a cliche, but you don't know what you don't know, so. Mm. To me, to to me and stroke as him seventeen bf, it was like um, we literally. It seemed like a wild frontier. It, it, it seemed like it could be limitless, and we weren't limitlessly ambitious. This is the strange thing about it. Obviously, we wanted to make a career out of it, and 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 you know have longevity, which thank God we have had. But making, I mean, you know, killing it and making, you know, and having 14 helicopters and being Nick Mason wasn't really part of the, uh, you know, it wasn't really, you know, we weren't bothered about that because firstly, part of our bolshiness again, we decided not to tour at all. We didn't tour until 1996. Um, and because we thought our strength was was in the studio and we'd lost quite a lot of money, which went on to our unrecouped bill with Virgin. <laughs> and just thought, right. you know, if we're going to spend money, let's spend it on something like videos, really good videos, where, you know, you can make 
you can service every single territory simultaneously and main and have this illusion that you're just as big as you know the biggest rock stars even though you're not touring and of course that works to a certain extent uh but it doesn't work in certain territories like the u.s because you have just have to tour it just doesn't right. work otherwise uh there are some exceptions but not many um so we were in this weird situation where we were definitely doing very well and uh and but we weren't ambitious we were kind right. of like ambitious on a kind of in a short term way i mean we were you know fiercely motivated and you know we would work a lot uh, long hours and i don't think we had a holiday for three years when we first started. Right. I mean, literally yeah. just on it all the time. And we lived, all of us lived uh, um, five minutes from Virgin Records on Portobello. So we okay. were always, we didn't have a manager. We looked after our own oh. affairs. Okay. So we kind of osmosed into the organization. And they loved us because it's like, you know, a lot of these people were were in the business. It's not like now where it's all bean counters and stuff. But yeah. a lot of people got into the business then because they were passionate about music. So the fact that they could see how passionate we were was a virtuous circle, and they put more effort into us basically than a lot of mm-hmm. other bands. And so, yeah, we had a good um, a good um, relationship with Virgin, who always treated us well, and. Uh, until obviously he dropped his, but that was like, you know, can you imagine this? Right. So being signed to Virgin since 1978. And then they drop us in 86, was it 86? Yeah. We thought that was a lifetime, you know, 78 to 86. Mm. And really yeah. in reality, in pop terms, it is, it's like, it was a massive shock, you know? Yeah. And, um, and look where we are now, you know, it's like nearly 40 years on from that point. Incredible. So, so did you think when that happened, did you think it was over? No, well, no, not really, because we did demos for ZTT and EMI. And we were convinced they were going to be, um, we we're going to get picked up because why not? You know, we'd had yeah. hits. We were still popular in se- several territories, not, not a UK kind of, uh, declined massively but germany we were still having top 20 hits thought well why wouldn't they pick us up and and mm. we did three demos uh i mean proper demos in the studio they gave us the studio time <laughs> no didn't pick us up so i went well you know okay so maybe we'll just give it, we'll take a hiatus. And as, as luck would have it, I did the 10 Trent Derby album at that point, And my production career was going from strength to strength. So I was not particularly, I mean, you know, obviously I love Heaven 17, but it was like, maybe it's just run its course, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And that tennis album, which sold, I don't know how many it sold. It sold just gazillions. I think to this date it's sold. Over ten million. Thank you. Oh, that is a lot. Yeah, it's it's his now, Dave. And yeah, you um, 
I'm really interested in what the process is that that you would, as a producer, uh, with with the experience of the Human League and BF and then Seventeen, in the studio. What what it is that you do? What what what? How do you work? Uh, obviously, you've done the um, music of quality of distinction as well, so yeah. you've worked with singers. Um, but the, how? Yeah, I'm mean, I'm very intrigued. At what the process is of putting together a record like that. Right. Well, what it's totally. It's totally different, not totally different, it's significantly different now because workflow is much faster, you don't generally have a big studio, blah, 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 and you're not paying a huge amount for a higher studio. But um, let's take the first BF album as an example. I mean, this was quite a radical idea to bring in uh, unusual um, singers to sing frankly strange backing tracks uh but familiar songs so you've always got that kind of you know you've always got that uh key into it you know uh, for the public they might go well this feels like an alien landscape but i know the song you know and i know the singer i just want to expect him to find them both on this planet you know fine. um and so I've always been very good at um, at the kind of psychological part of production with solo singers. I mean, I did a few groups in the early part of my production career, and I knocked that in the, in the head post-haste. Groups are a nightmare. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you spend all your time just, just kind of navigating their psychodramas, you know, and I'm not interested. I'm only there right, to yeah. do good work and make something special. Yeah. So I guess uh, you've been through your own quite quite monstrous yeah. psychodrama yourself. Yeah, but very much. when you when you when you've only got three when you've only got three people in a band, it, it's fine because you yeah. can never have you can't have cliques. As soon as you go beyond three, you've got problem. Right. And okay. Quite, anyway. So I decided to focus on solo singers. So of course the Music of Quality and Distinction albums were about that. And, um, you know, when when you've worked with people like, um, you know, Tina Turner, uh, and you've had some success, uh, people uh, naturally have a certain degree of respect for you, no matter how old you are. I mean, most people like Let's Stay Together, for instance. I thought it was a, you know, a very well i think i think it's quite a classy piece of work you know um mm. and 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 but it manages to have a little bit of innovation woven into it as well so i think once people understood that they said we can incrementally move the world of popular music forward into somewhere uh, and into interesting territory while still actually making plenty of dosh. And I think that's why I got lots of work in the production world. So the process was generally, I would get inside the head of the, um, the, uh, the singer, the artist. Some of them had nothing to do with the music at all. Like Tina, nothing. She has never, right. you know, I mean, she just literally turned up sang was immensely professional and then went 
That's it. She right. never even took us. <laughs> never we wasn't there for the mix or anything like that. You know, uh, just you know that that's what she'd done throughout her entire career. So, uh, and nobody was better at it. So, mm. so that's one end of the scale. Then you got solo artists who write all their own stuff. I mean, Tina's never written any stuff either, as far as I know. Um, solo artists who write all, all their own stuff and have got performance anxiety and uh, in the studio. And, uh, and so they've got all this, these kind of tangled things going on and you've got to try and unwrap it and give them confidence and, and get a performance out of them. Uh, so I'm good at that as well. So I, I was kind of, had a, um, a, a a kind of deliver. I made a deliberate effort to be as empathetic as possible mm. to people because everybody's got their own insecurities. I've lost count of the number of times. I'm not going to go into details, but some of the most not not Tina, by the way. Some of the most famous singers I've worked with uh, are amongst the most insecure they've always got a sore throat they're, they're always oh i'm sorry you know something's wrong with my voice today something you know i'm going to take an inhalation and some vocal zones and it's just nerves you know right yeah 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 and, and i guess they're so exposed you, aren't they yeah when you're performing live you can get away with being a little bit i mean in fact the yeah. audience will probably back you up because they think they're hearing something unique but yes. when you're recording something it's there forever yeah. So and when you're that, very famous, yeah, you've you, got you're, to you're trust under the spotlight. Yeah. You've got to trust the curatorial taste of the producer, mm. uh, because I'm the one who's going away and looking at all the different takes and going and making a compilation of all the best bits. And to his eternal credit, Terence, when we did that album, um, he left me to do it completely on my own. Okay, me and Phil Leg, the engineer, he trusted me implicitly, and uh, and so that was that. That really is the nub of it. And then, of course, producers in those days um, were really arrangers as well mm. a lot of the time. So you know, you often get, and still to this day, you do. But it's different in those days because studio time is so expensive. They come, you know, people come in with a, a rough kind of Porter Studio demo and go, what do you think? And, and then it's my job to suggest various things, to build an arrangement around a, a skeleton, essentially. Pick out the vocal, create vocal arrangements with them. Um, create kind of instrumental counterpoints around, you know, to, to point up the uh beauty of the of the uh the essence of the song and embellish it you know i don't think there's quite as much as that goes on now except right at the very top mm. i think it's right much yeah, more, yeah because we're working with digital audio workstations it's more uh process driven uh so that's why i don't generally don't do third party productions anymore because firstly they can't afford me secondly right there's not enough money at the back end to justify affording me thirdly yeah artists don't really it's such a world apart you've got to you know yeah i, I was talking to uh, 
one of my good buddies is uh, Richard Hawley, right? And uh, he's a consummate songwriter, I think. Um, and I was talking to him about all this stuff. And he was going, you know, what, um, how, you know, how do I make, how do I explain to people that my influences are so old fashioned, but it's like this stuff is classic and will go on forever. And that, and all this stuff just sounds like it could be made now, 20 years ago, maybe 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. And that's what I love is like stuff that has a futuristic sheen, but actually at its core is timeless. If I was going to change the title of BF at one point to Timeless Timeless Productions, but I thought it sounded oh, okay. just a bit over the top arrogant. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an interesting concept, isn't it? Because I, I suppose in your productions, buried in there is the DNA of uh, those first few Human League albums and, yeah. you know, D Dignity of Labour. And I think Eno, who I know, you know, we've we've talked about him before, who's a big influence on, on so many people. But that idea of um, bringing, working with somebody like, say, U2 or Coldplay. Um, I quite liked the U2 one, the Coldplay, not so much, but uh, where he just brings in a sort of 10, 15% of, of the weird uh, around it somehow, just to sort of shift it off axis, just that little bit. That's it. But doesn't That's mess with it. You've nailed it. And all, um, you think about the um, Talking Heads stuff he did. Mm. In my opinion, the best Talking Heads stuff are the ones that they did with Eno because you've got that, uh, kind, yeah. that kind of sense of futurism about it. Uh, yeah. uh, they can drift into ironic trad rock if they're not careful. Uh I still like his voice and I like their songwriting very much, but it's when it shifts into uh, through this other lens, which Eno is brilliant at. I mean, he obviously did it to a certain extent with the Berlin albums with Bowie and and yeah. all, all that stuff. Um, it's a. I'll tell you what it is. It's also a kind of self-effacing thing. Because it's not shouting, look at me, this is my production style, this is Eno. It's like just a kind of layer of gorgeousness, normally. Mm. Which yeah. I, you know, and anybody who loves his work can understand it being woven into that fabric, you know. I love that. And I, th I would like to think that to a certain extent, I'm not as good as that, but there's a certain amount of that in the productions that I, I do. Because I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a control freak at all. You know, right. I, I, everything right. I do is uh, at the service of the song and, and and of the artist. And if the artist doesn't like something, it doesn't go in. You know, it's not like I'm going. Well, it's my way or the highway. I'm not like right. that. Right? Yeah, yeah. It seems that when you see any, not that there's a lot of it, footage of Bowie working with Eno or. or Bowie working at the Beatles. I don't know if you watched the uh, Get Back um, I didn't, documentary, no. uh, which is incredible. Um, it looks like it could have been filmed yesterday. No. But one of the things that that strikes me about when you see people working at that level on albums that you know so well, that are so huge and iconic, uh, they seem to be having fun. 
and that seems to be such an important oh, element mad- of of making good music of, of being sort of free to uh play around and and have ideas and no one's going to slag you off or, or sort of I mean, I guess that does happen as well. You have rows it's, in the studio, but that's not a very productive. Um, no, you see it, it, the, the other um, the other documentary I saw recently was the King Crimson one. Have you seen that? No, I haven't seen that yet. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it's it's, it's really interesting because I, although I've met uh, Robert for a few times on various festivals with Toya and everything, um, and I'm. He's my favourite guitarist in the world, bar none. I think he's a genius. Uh, and it's an overused word, but I genuinely believe that. Um, I think that he's, uh, uh, well, based on that documentary, he seemed, he, well, he didn't seem, he admits to it. He's completely got a vision and nothing can can deviate from it. And that's what makes King Crimson and all their iterations so. I mean, good lord, you got to watch the documentary. The, the, the. I must. Amazing, uh, rigor with which he insists people perform. It's a bit like Frank Zappa, you know. Uh, mm. Everything has to be, you know, hemi demi semi quaver perfect, and uh, to, you know. Time signatures and changes. Yeah. You know, he says it just would not work unless it was this. And so right. there's very little room for imp- improvisation. But hey, but guess what? Like Zappa, he can fucking improvise all he wants, right? It's his gig. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right? Don't forget that. So I think that that's and that's the, that's the, kind of opposite end of production approach where it's like you have you are you believe you have this bulletproof identity musically and and here are the rules and this is how it goes and if if anybody strays off it then they're just making it weaker and weaker you know the yeah. falls i don't believe that's the case i believe in in uh in the studio in the studio environment you've got to um you got to you got to have the most open of minds. Yeah, I guess there's only a handful of artists like Fripp and like Zappa, um, maybe Miles Davis. I don't know, maybe even Marky e. Smith of the Fall. You know, who run their or James Brown. You know, run their bands like these sort of um, regimented, almost more like a sort of classical music, where yeah, um, the expectation is that you just deliver. Immediately, you fucking and that's it. Yeah. yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. And Whereas you, you've got to watch that King Crimson thing. It's really funny. I must, one, yeah. Sounds at amazing. one point, at one point, it looks like it's all falling apart. The documentary, I mean, and he oh, okay. he, he starts <laughs> turning on the filmmakers. And I, I interviewed, <laughs> I interviewed Toya recently for my podcast, and she said, "Oh, I had to, uh, I had to, I had to be the you know Henry Kissinger in the situation. I was sweet talking the." Yeah, you know, Robert and the director, and we got the film made and out. But they started that, you know, <laughs> all these documentaries. The you know when they're making these things, they want to have um, jeopardy moments, don't they? Well, this is like one long jeopardy moment, you know. <laughs> it's really funny. I mean, funny in a dark way. Yeah, I think the other thing I can never understand is 
a lot of bands over time, and this is why I don't, you know, again, going back to the bands thing, bands over time, um, it's more common than not that they end up not liking each other and not enjoying yes. going on tour together, even if they have to do it for money mm. or or ego or kudos or whatever it is, or some combination of them all. Um, another, uh, I was reading Stephen Wilson's um, autobiography, who is a friend of mine, and uh, the first, the opening uh, chapter or two is about him going back out on tour again and playing selling out the Royal Albert Hall with Porcupine Tree twi- uh, two nights in a row. I'm going, Jesus, that's quite impressive. Uh, but he, he just sounded miserable. And he said, you know, right. re- everybody, had, their lives had all gone in different directions. And it was, you know. Yeah. And it's like, we never had that problem because me and Glenn are just like brothers, you know. We don't agree on everything, but, you know, we're family. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, unfortunately, Ian's not. You know, he decided to step back. But, um, you know, it's so human relationships within creative units are, uh, are critical. If if you don't feel yeah. free in a in a studio situation to to come up with ideas, and you're you're going, you know, nobody likes my ideas, you know, and I, and and then you stop coming up with ideas because you think you're going to get knocked back. Yeah. And then you've got the yeah. other side of the coin. I, you know, like Tony Hadley, who, uh, you know, I know really well, and we have good long chats whenever we see each other, you know. And that whole thing that Spandau Ballet went through with the legal thing and everything, you cannot, after the fact, go, but we we were there when it was all written, and we should have 20% or whatever. You know what? Figure all that shit out before. <laughs> the only people yeah. get to the lawyers, you know. Yeah. I think bands who've sort of survived well, I, I mentioned Coldplay earlier, they're, they're not a favourite of mine, but I think, um, like you too, who are also not a favourite of mine, I think they kind of agreed really early on uh, how to organise the business. That's what we and, did. Uh, right, and, and it's, so it's they just agreed it, so it's, it's equal, yeah. and they're still, they're still together and they yeah. don't appear to have fallen out. Um, yeah. So yeah, that 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 whole, and I think we yeah. we've touched on this before. The, the the where business and art nudge up, which is exactly where all bands uh, or artists who are successful, whether they like it or not, they can't help it. They're just right stuck in the middle of that. You're you're an artist, uh, but you're a business. Yeah. And the more records you sell, and the more popular you are more the business side starts to impinge on the art side and riding that uh crack in the uh substructure of your life it must be oh it's really difficult i mean uh, and again i think that's where you kind of you sort of set the whole thing up with that in mind it's like you you'd been i guess you'd been through the the mill a bit with the human league experience and you'd sort of seen what what could happen and you'd Mm. seen the cynicism but you kind of co-opted it into your expectation and the way you presented it. Well, also... Uh, and it's you know, like a shield. Yeah, at the start of the 80s, uh, when we started BF and Hem 17, it was, in in, a, in private life terms, we were all having a great time. You know, it was non-stop party time. I know it's a cliche, 
but we were having a great time. You know, we, we money was coming in. We didn't need a huge amount of money. We because we had good solid friendship group and blah blah blah. And the last thing we wanted to do was to spend two years promoting a uh, an album on the road, going around the world, bored off our tits except for performing, and taking loads of drugs to keep yourself going. And we could see there were some contemporaries of ours that um, that were going down that path. And mm. I just didn't want to be that, didn't want to go there. And so the record company, to be fair to them, we didn't even give them an option. We said, look, you can try and persuade us all you want, but we're not going to go down that path. This is what we want to do. And uh, so we did. And, uh, you know, if I say, for instance, I hadn't done that, I don't think my production career would have taken off in the same way. Yeah, yeah. Because I wouldn't have had it's the funny, time to you, do it. Yeah, and you, you had this kind of, um, you described it before as sort of a bolshy uh, yeah. Yeah. approach. Um, you look back on it now and you, th- I can imagine you think, how did, uh, how did we manage to, to hold that off? But I, yeah. I guess your, your fierceness of uh, intent was... I think the secret to all these things, what, which is what I, 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 I would advise anybody who's starting out in this business to do, is to figure out what you want to do and your intentions. Mm. Uh, and then make it clear to whoever, if somebody's signing you up, or, or somebody, a management or a record company or whatever, make it clear to them from the outset what your ground rules are. Because if you leave it up to them, of course, they're just going to try and monetize, squeeze the, you know, they're going to get try and get blood out of a stone. It's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. They'll say all the good stuff right on the outset. Of course, they will try and get you on the hook. But then as soon as they get you on the grass bank, they'll smash you over the head with a brick, you know. <laughs> so that's, one of the, that's a very good metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, treatment I think so. So. I don't know what the metaphor is for what I went through. I suppose it was yeah. in, uh, were very kind and put us in a nice tank and uh, <laughs> fish food. <laughs> Let us grow great, to our yeah. natural old age. Yeah. <laughs> Tended you with a bit of yeah. fish food every now and again. Well, that's that's magnificent. Um, there's lots more we could talk about. Um, yeah. I've got there's loads of things on on my list here, but uh, I think we're out of time, aren't we? Yeah, we are. uh, But what what, uh, it's been a pleasure actually. And for those who don't know, we attempted this yesterday and it didn't record, so this has been quite, I think, actually, it's been better. This conversation, it's 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 interesting, isn't it? When you go sort of do it for a second time, um, yeah, it's a different dynamic and uh, interesting stuff, but yeah, well, thanks a lot for having me on oh, it's, uh, it's my and, pleasure and, uh, and, uh, you should give a plug for the uh for for whatever we're plugging off you go oh yeah electronicsound.co.uk if you want to buy a copy of uh the latest issue 101 with the the single martin's fantastic single that we talked about earlier and uh, a very interesting interview uh, which delves more deeply into the uh some of the chaos and uh, triumph of the uh, <laughs> end of heaven, uh, human league, and the beginning yeah. of being. But uh, what a story! It's a, it's a cautionary tale. Yes, 
isn't it just yeah. <laughs> cool. nice one all right Mark. Well, thanks again i'll speak to you again soon take care cool. Mark, I hope you enjoyed that insight into certain parts that I've not really discussed before, kind of the way I think about production and working with bands and all that stuff. There'll be another proper episode uh, on, on Friday, as usual, and um, look forward to seeing you then. Bye.